0: I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14 will be the passage that we use as our primary text for the message this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, reading from the English Standard Version translation. Paul says to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this same Spirit that the Apostle Paul speaks of, Your Holy Spirit, is the one who can open up our hearts and minds to illuminate the meaning of Your Word so that we can truly feed upon the truths of Scripture in such a way that we're built up in our faith in Christ. And this is what we ask. Enable us to hear the word with faith. Enable us to be transformed by your word into the likeness of your son. Enable us to desire deeply to seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. Enable us by the transformation of your grace, by the work of your spirit, to become those who are salt and light, even to this generation. In our Savior's name. Amen. So once again, we're coming to the Word of God with the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation in mind. This October 31st, we will look back 500 years to 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the church door at Wittenberg Castle in Wittenberg, Germany. That day marked the beginning of the recovery of the gospel and the reforming of the of the church in both doctrine and in its practices. Now this protest movement, Protestantism, had five essential concepts, themes, principles related to the gospel and salvation that God used to bring about true revival, to bring about true reformation of the church. They're called the five solas because they're named in Latin, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gradia, Grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, which is what we will consider this morning. Solus Christus, Christ alone, next week. And then sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, on Reformation Sunday. Now, in the five solas, we have the most essential concerns of the gospel. Scripture is the authoritative word from God, and therefore, only Scripture declares to us truly and faithfully and accurately the fallen condition of humanity out of which we must be saved. Then the other has described how we're supposed to be saved and then ultimately why we're supposed to be saved. How we're saved by grace alone. How we're saved through faith alone. How we're saved in Christ alone. Why? Because this is what is ultimately to the glory of God alone. Now this morning, considering salvation, considering specifically justification that comes by faith alone, I want us to appreciate that this is the key thing about the Reformation. All the great theologians from Martin Luther to R.C. Sproul have maintained that the doctrine of the justification by a faith that stands alone apart from the works of the law is the essential truth of the gospel. It's the essential issue that was being so hotly contested at the time of the Reformation. And it is also the central element in the argument that the Apostle Paul is giving us in Galatians chapter 3 in these 14 verses. Paul sets forth justification by faith alone apart from the works of the law, apart from the works of the flesh. But to appreciate anything he says in chapter 3, we have to look at the larger context of the book of Galatians. That's what makes this more clear. Paul had the greatest concern about these churches that they were turning away from the true gospel and turning to a false gospel that was no gospel, no good news at all. That that false gospel was wrapped up in in returning to a principle of works righteousness, returning to a principle of, of maintaining one's justification by keeping the law So they were seeking in that manner to establish firmly their justification and to keep their justification by going back to the very thing that the Apostle Paul had so uh, drastically left and condemned when he was converted from Saul the Pharisee to the man who became the Apostle Paul. So we have before us the great concern of Paul about what's happening in the Galatian church. That same great concern is what gripped Martin Luther and the other magisterial reformers. In fact, the concern of Paul is so strong that if we look at chapter 1, we'll see what Paul thinks about those who turn away from the true gospel. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, this is what Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now notice what he says. Deserting. You are deserting God, is what Paul is saying. It's not that you need to get your doctrine tweaked a little bit. You're deserting God in what's going on here. Verse 7. Not that there is another one. That is, not that there is a second or third or fourth good news. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, to put that in modern English, it would be, let him be damned by God. That's what anathema means in the Greek. That's the intensity of what Paul is saying here. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Then Paul follows this up in chapter 2, where he sets forth the the essence, the the main thesis of the true gospel. So this would be chapter 2, verse 16 where Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now please understand that when Paul makes reference to the works of the law, He's talking about the holiest and highest standard of what pleases God that has ever been given to the world. If God rejects trying to keep His highest standard, then of course God's going to reject anyone trying to keep a lesser standard. And that's why all attempts to justify oneself by good works is failed because none of our good works would ever measure up to the height, depth, and nature of the holiness of God's own revealed law. Now, in this, Paul is saying that you have to understand there are only two ways to think about being justified before God. It is a diametric, clear either-or. Invoking the law of the excluded middle. There's no middle ground here. Paul is saying... Either God issues the verdict of justified based upon our performance of whatever the law and everything the law requires, or God issues the verdict of justification, justified based on faith in Christ plus nothing else. That's what Paul is maintaining. Chapter 2, verse 16. Then in chapter 3, which is our text, Paul goes on to argue justification from the Old Testament, from the covenant that God made with Abraham, from the first earthly, temporal, historical inauguration of the covenant of grace, to prove over and against the principle of the law that being justified by God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's the concern. Uh, the, The great concern of Paul's message is that great central concern of the Protestant Reformation. We are justified by faith alone, not by anything else that we might ever do. Now, a proper presentation then of this concept of justification is by faith alone requires that we would answer several questions. The first would be this. What is the biblical meaning of faith and justification? What is the biblical meaning of these two, and how are they connected? Uh, Then secondly, it would be important for us to ask, how does faith itself operate? What's what's the nature of the operation of faith? Uh, Thirdly, uh, faith always has an object. So what is the object of faith? What is the proper object of faith that we find in the gospel? Then fourthly, how do we come to this faith? And finally, what does this faith produce? What are the benefits of this faith? So we begin with this first question What is the meaning of faith and justification? Now, as we mentioned before, uh, everything about what's going on in these solas is about uh, the, the, the vocabulary of grace. And so the term faith and the term justification both fall within this conception of the New Testament's definitions of the broadness and scope of God's grace. Uh, But the words themselves are just simple words that come out of the Greek language without any specialized, spiritualized meaning. So the word faith falls within the Greek family of words that talks about relying upon something, uh, trusting in something, believing something, or believing someone. It's, It's just that normal word in the Greek language for that. The significance of the word lies in its connection to salvation. That's where the word gains its special and unique sense. And here the vital biblical understanding of faith, which was recovered by the Reformation, presents faith, genuine faith, as a saving faith. If you have real faith, it saves you, is the New Testament understanding. Uh, It involves not just having a mental knowledge of something, not just a mental assent to the truth of something, but the vital aspect of trust. So the Westminster Standards uh, describe uh, and define this kind of saving faith this way. It says the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, uh, receiving, and resting upon. By that they mean trusting, resting upon Christ alone for justification. Now, of course, then faith, saving faith, cannot be defined in the New Testament... Apart from justification. So, what does justification mean? Well, it, as a Greek word, it comes from that family of words that involves justice, to justify justification, and righteous, righteousness, and to declare righteous. That's what these words all mean. We have two different words in English. The Greek uses just one word to cover everything from justice to be declared righteous. Where we would say, oh, to be declared righteous means to be. So the connection between faith and justification is at the heart of the gospel. That's why Paul says, as his theme in Romans chapter one, verses sixteen and seventeen. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then in our passage, chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God By the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when you put these two things together and you recognize that they fall within the vocabulary of grace, so they fall under the New Testament teaching about we're saved by grace alone, we can state justification by faith alone this way. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ which is imputed to us and received by faith alone. If you want a reference for that, that's the Shorter Catechism 33. That's the definition of justification. Bringing justification and faith together all because of Christ Himself. Now, What this means over and against the Roman Catholic Church's teaching is that God justifies freely not by infusing a righteousness into us, but rather by an act of pardoning our sins. It's a judgment that God makes about us. He pronounces your sins forgiven and then He reckons you, He counts you as righteous. He accepts you as righteous in His sight, not because of anything that you've done and not because of anything that's actually gone on inside of you, but entirely because of Christ. That's why the best in the Reformation, and we'll get into this next week, they they talked again and again about we are saved by a righteousness that is outside of us, by the righteousness of the Son of God Himself. That righteousness saves us. Not our inner righteousness, which is paltry, which is mostly absent, which is defective in every way. It's not by what God is doing in us that saves us. It's what God has done for us that saves us. So God isn't counting or crediting even our faith as righteousness. No, Uh, not our, our act of believing isn't the righteousness that saves us. It is Christ that saves us. Christ God credits His obedience. God credits His righteousness. God credits His satisfaction of our sins to us. And we receive it in the act of faith. Faith is trusting what God has done for us in Christ. Faith is resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. So just in defining the biblical understanding of faith, the biblical understanding of justification... We have the central teaching of the Reformation. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what was being recovered for the gospel's sake. This is what has always been vital for the recovery, the reform, the reformation of the church. We are justified by faith alone. And that leads to the next question. How does this faith operate? Here again, the reformers were very concerned to give a very careful biblical definition and explanation to this question. In the first place, we've already alluded to this, but they said faith has three aspects to it, three necessary aspects to it. And without all three of these, you don't have saving faith. Uh, In the first place, they said there's knowledge or content because you're believing. You're believing something or you're believing someone. So there has to be information. There has to be content. There has to be an object of what you believe. So it has to exist. Secondly, you have to have the conviction that what you believe is true. Uh, that whatever's going on, you, the things that you have faith about, they're true. The person that you have faith in is perfectly trustworthy and reliable. But there's a third aspect, and the third aspect is absolutely indispensable and necessary for saving faith, and it's the element of trust. The act of commitment the act of entrusting oneself to the implications of the belief or, the, or the, 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 thing, the person himself, entrusting yourself to the care and power and authority of another. Now, you, you've likely heard this illustration. It's, it's old, but it, it does capture these things well. Uh, but it's about that famous um, Frenchman who was a tightrope walker, uh, Charles Blondin, uh, so, in the summer of 1859, he stretched uh, an, an 1,100 foot rope across the Niagara Falls from the United States to Canada. And then he began to perform all in kinds of incredible feats on this tightrope. Uh, things like uh, going across with a sack around him, around his feet, his body, right. Um, He did it on stilts. (laughs) Can you imagine? He rode a bicycle. He did it in the dark. He did it blindfolded. Uh, One time, he even carried a stove out to the middle and cooked an omelet as he's hanging 160 feet above the falls. Another time, he pushed a wheelbarrow across uh, with a big sack of potatoes in it. So you've got these crowds watching him, and they've seen him do all of these seemingly impossible kinds of things. So at one point, he stops, and he addresses the audience, and he says, Do you believe I could carry a person across in a wheelbarrow? And the crowd is all enthusiastic. They're all yelling, Of course, you're the greatest tightrope walker in the world. Of course we believe this. Yes, if anyone could do it, you could do it. When he asked for a volunteer, <laughs> there was no one who was willing to entrust himself to Blondin at that point. Now, they had the first two parts of what biblical faith must have. They, they had the knowledge and the conviction about this man. Uh, they were convinced of these things, but it stopped short of them willing to entrust themselves to Him. They didn't have that kind of faith. Now, the reason why we know this to be an indispensable part of faith is because James himself names it, second chapter of the book of James, when he says, You believe there is one God, you do well. The demons believe likewise and tremble. So recognize that someone who who, who might say, I believe the Christian faith is true. Someone might believe everything that the Bible says. But if they haven't stepped into that wheelbarrow, willing to let Blondem cross on the tightrope, if they haven't entrusted their eternal salvation into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not saved. Their faith is no better than the faith that demons have. And and that's what was such a concern for the Reformers. Trust is the most necessary and completing part of saving faith. We have to trust in this person. We have to trust in the person of Christ. Now, what this means is that the, the, the full nature of biblical faith is essentially passive Now listen carefully. The activity of faith is passive. It is a resting. It is a relying. It is found in entrusting ourselves to Christ. John Calvin said it this way. He said, with respect to justification, faith is a merely passive thing, bringing nothing of our own to win the favor of God but receiving what we need from Christ. Faith receives the gift of righteousness, the gift of eternal life. It receives God's verdict, justification. It receives this declaration that we are righteous in the sight of God. It receives a pardon for all of our sins. Now, why was this such good news to the Reformers? Why did they fight so hard for this? Before Luther discovered justification by faith, before he understood justification by faith alone, he lived in the greatest fear that he would never confess his sins faithfully enough. He would never confess his sins fully enough. He would never pray as much as he should. He would never worship God as fully or faithfully as he should. He would never do enough in terms of amending for his sins. He would never do enough acts of contrition in terms of penance. He would never be able to expiate his own sins. He would always fall short. In fact, he lived daily in mortal fear that he would die and his soul would be sent directly to hell. And he was a professor of theology at the university in Wittenberg, under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. No one knew Roman Catholic theology from end to end better than Martin Luther. And that's what this theology did to his soul. It was justification by faith alone which rescued Luther and so many thousands upon thousands of others who also had seen the futility of all that they sought to do to justify themselves before God. So the spiritual battle of the Reformation was a battle against a false gospel. It's as though the Roman church said in its theology, yes, you begin with the Spirit because the Spirit changes you in baptism and you're baptized as an infant. But you must continue by the things which you do. Faithful to all of the sacraments, faithful to all the good works, faithful to everything that's required of you. Yes, you've begun by the Spirit, but you must complete all of that by what you do. Now, we know this is the case because in 1545, you know, just uh, 25 years or so, uh, 28 years after the Reformation got going, you had the Counter-Reformation, the Council of Trent and they had seen exactly what Protestant Reformation was teaching, and they declared themselves against the Reformation and positively stated what they believed. So, for instance, in Canon number 9, this is what is written. If anyone says that the ungodly is justified by faith alone in such a way that he understands that nothing else is required which cooperates, toward the obtaining of the grace of justification, let him be condemned. Same kind of anathema that we find in Galatians chapter 1. Canon number 12. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than trust in divine mercy, which remits sin for Christ's sake, or that it is this trust alone by which we are justified, let him be condemned. Canon 14. If anyone says that a man is absolved and justified because he confidently believes that he's absolved and justified and that through his faith alone absolution and justification is effected, let him be condemned. And then in the Catholic Catechism, uh, paragraph 1459, raised up from sin, so this is the Catechism teaching the Catholic doctrine, raised up from sin, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for the sin. He must make satisfaction for or expiate his sins. This satisfaction is called penance. And then in the Catechism, paragraph 2025, 20, merit is to be ascribed in the first place to the grace of God and secondarily to man's collaboration Man's merit is due to God. The Roman Catholic Church taught that something more than Christ was necessary in order for someone to be saved. The issue with the church in Galatia is that the Galatians were teaching that something more than Christ was necessary in order to be saved. Whatever gospel you preach to us, Paul, about Jesus Christ... We're now adding the law because we've been taught by those Judaizers from Jerusalem that apart from keeping the law, we can't be saved. So yes, we need Jesus Christ plus what we do. The Roman Catholic Church was teaching, yes, you need the grace of God in Christ plus what you can do. I was 12 years old when I got into my first argument that was reformational in nature. My neighborhood buddy down the street was a Roman Catholic. I was about 12, and we got into this big, what started out as a discussion, then it got into a heated argument over salvation. Look, I was a John 3.16 Baptist. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel in a nutshell, it is faith in Christ. God gave me his son so I could be saved by faith in him and never perish. And he said, no, you have to have faith in good works. And no, you don't know that you're saved. (laughs) You can't know it until you die, whether you're right with God or not. And that is why even today, when, when we talk to good Catholics, practicing Catholics, who, about their own personal salvation, they will confess that this is something they cannot know in this life. All they can hope for is that they've been faithful enough, that they have enough merit, that they will hopefully have God's approval when they die They can only hold on to what the church has taught them because only the church has the right to tell them how they're going to be saved. And there's no hope there for a tender conscience. There's no hope for such a man as Martin Luther who grieved over his sin. To be told it is up to you to earn God's favor is not good news. It is a crushing, crushing Message to those who hate their sin and find themselves unable to do otherwise. Now, we've already pointed in this direction, but the next question then is this. What is the object of our faith? Paul says in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this again underscores the passive nature of our faith. Uh, sometimes in, in, in reformational theology and afterwards, this was described as the instrumental nature of faith. And I think, well, people don't quite get what that means today. That language isn't necessarily clear. The instrumental nature of faith. Well, you could say it, 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 we're talking about whether faith causes salvation or whether faith is maybe a channel through which salvation comes. Even channel isn't necessarily a good word. So let me illustrate it this way. Reformers just didn't have this. um, They didn't have this great illustration because they didn't know about electricity. Um, But I went to the Hoover Dam when I was about 12 or 13, and I was absolutely stunned by the the tour inside. And you've got these incredible, incredible pieces of equipment that are generating, uh, you know, something like 4 billion kilowatts every year, enough electricity to supply the, the, the households for uh, just a little under 1.5 million people. It's unimaginable power. And you could actually go inside, and, but you couldn't get too close. But you, these great turbines and everything generating all of this, magnets, everything. It's just, it was incredible it always deeply impressed me that all this power was right there. Now, that power, you know, goes out to these houses. And in some houses, you've got appliances like an electric dryer that take 220 volts. And then you've got the ordinary appliances like a lamp that takes, you know, 110. And then you've got small little instruments like uh, a cell phone that has to be recharged on just five volts. Now, each one of these things, if you know what I'm talking about, has its own cord. A cell phone cord is really small. A regular electrical cord, you know, it's a little bit bigger. Uh, The dryer cord is huge. I mean, it's big and it's got a huge thing that goes into the wall, very special. Now, the dryer does not work because of the cord. But the dryer can't work without without what the cord supplies. And the dryer works through the cord. That's how the electricity flows to it. And also for a lamp. A lamp doesn't work because of the cord, but a lamp can't work Without the cord, the lamp works because of the electricity that comes through the cord. And and likewise for a cell phone getting recharged. Uh, You pull, unplug the dryer, and its inners will spin until it stops. You unplug a lamp, and the bulb will go dim. Today they go dim more slowly than the old filament bulbs, but it goes dim slowly. You unplug a cell phone, and after a while, its battery will be entirely drained. Now, now the point is, the Reformers would say that Jesus Christ is like the Hoover Dam. Christ is the source of the power of salvation. And they would say, faith is like the cord that connects you through which the power comes. Your faith doesn't save you. The cord doesn't charge the phone. The cord is the channel through which the power to recharge it happens. Faith doesn't save you. Faith is the instrument through which God, the power of Christ by the Holy Spirit, comes to you to save you. Or to look at it this way. When you trust Christ that is placing yourself into the hands of the one who saves you. We shorten that and say faith saves you. But that's just shorthand language that we find in the New Testament to explain that faith saves us because it's the object of faith who saves us. It is God who saves us through His Son, Jesus Christ. The real power of faith is never in how hard you believe. The real power of faith is in the greatness of a God who in Christ saves you because of what His Son has done. Now, that's good news. That is terrifically good news Because I know some of you have faith that looks like that 220 voltage wire. It's big, it's thick, it's strong. Some of you have faith that looks like that little lamp cord, much, much smaller. And some of you only have cell phone kind of faith. That is to say, it's a very small cord. But guess what? Christ said, even faith as small as a mustard seed. And Christ himself will save you. What good news that is. Which means that when your faith was only the size of a cell phone cord, the day that you first believed, you were as saved as much then, as you will be that last day on your dying bed when your heart is lifted up to heaven and you can almost see heaven parted and you can almost envision Christ with His arms waiting for you. Dying in the great trust that Jesus Christ is coming for you, your faith can be so magnificently large then, but it is no more saving you at that point than it did the first moment you believed. It's not the size of your faith. It's the size of your Savior. That's why we can be justified by faith alone, apart from anything else that we might do. Then we come to this faith because it's God who does it. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, uh, Colossians 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 for God who said light let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ God is the one not only creating the light for the world but he creates that light in your own heart to show you Christ and then the benefits of faith what does faith do wow Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for grace you have been saved through faith. Faith gives us eternal salvation in Christ. Of course, it justifies us before God. Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith. It brings adoption. uh, Chapter 1 of John, verse 12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Our sanctification is also by faith. We grow in holiness by faith, Paul wrote, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2. And then our perseverance and victory are also because of faith. Hebrews 12:1 and 2. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In 1 John 5, 4 and 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Look, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is such an important teaching because in it, it carries the whole message of the Gospel. All of the good news All of the good news that all of the Christian life is by faith in Christ. And that's why Paul's language is so strong. Beginning of chapter 3 of Galatians. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? or by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the faith? To begin the Christian life as a Christian by believing is to begin the Christian life by the Spirit. Trusting Christ is God's means by which He justifies us and declares us righteous. But trusting in Christ is the means by which His Spirit then continues to work in us to do God's good pleasure. Now, this was not something new, by the way, that the Protestant Reformation invented. In AD 95, the lead pastor of Rome was Clement, sometimes in church history called Bishop Clement. He wrote a letter from Rome to the church at Corinthians. It's called First Clement. In chapter 32 of his letter... Verses 3 to 4, this is what he said. Speaking of Jacob, what God had given to the patriarchs of the Old Testament, quote, They all, therefore, were glorified and magnified, not through themselves, or through their own works, or the righteous doing which they wrought, but through His will. And so we, having been called through His will in Christ Jesus, are not justified, through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety of works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith, whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have ever been from the beginning to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So it is. The church stands or falls on a doctrine of the justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Let's pray.